We are in Galatians chapter 5. If you want to be turning there in your pew Bibles, it is page 1400. Paul seems to be throwing a curveball to us this morning. Because this far in the text in Galatians, Paul's been saying some things quite a bit clearly. If you read it, here we go. But he's been saying this, that the law doesn't save people. Um, God proclaimed righteousness by faith to Abraham. And that's the same promise that we receive his righteousness by, by faith. He's been saying things like this in Galatians. People who think they need Jesus plus the law are endangering their salvation. That's the crux of what Paul's been saying, and it was controversial to his hearers, and it's actually controversial to some Christians today, but now Paul's going to say a few things that make us scratch our heads. He's going to mention the law in a favorable light, or so it seems, and it's going to make us at first glance, if we're not careful, say, wait, what are you saying, Paul? Are you for or against the law? So I invite you to stand one more time if you're able. Let's read the first or these six verses today, Galatians 5, 13 through 18. <clears throat> Paul writes, For you brothers were called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is fulfilled in a single decree. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh craves what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are opposed to each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Let's pray. Father, we've been speaking of the Spirit, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would pour out on us. Would you use this time for your glory? Lord Jesus, we want to be more like you. We want to do what you call us to do. Not because you're scary or angry, but you are a loving Father. And you call us to greater things. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be the one speaking and not I. Holy Spirit, we pray you would be at work in hearts and minds to receive your word, to be changed by you, to grow to be more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior, who died for our sins and rose again. Amen. You may be seated. I remember... In 2008, that May, I graduated high school. Yes, I'm that young or I'm that old. <laughs> oh, same. <laughs> and there was the summer right after I graduated. Three months, a summer vacation like many summer vacations for me before. I was already working for Pepsi-Cola. I started to work at the Cloninger's grocery store on top of that. And I had decided by that, by the time I graduated or maybe a little bit into the summer that I was going to be taking college online. So I was ready to go with college. I had classes. But I still remember that fall 
of 2008. When I knew some of the classmates of mine were in bigger towns, you know, the big, huge town of Lewiston, or <laughs> Moscow, or maybe a few who went to a different state, Boise State, and, uh, or, you know, beyond, or even a state beyond. And here I was, little old Kevin, back in little old Kamii, underclassmen heading back to Kamii High School, my peers in bigger cities living alone or on campus or with roommates, and there I was still in my parents' house. And for whatever reason, whenever you turn 18 or graduate high school, your house turns into just your parents' house. And uh, sure, I was attending college, so what was I embarrassed about? I wasn't somewhere else. I was suddenly, I suppose, an adult with two jobs, plus the added position of youth pastor at the Valley View Nazarene, but I still felt like I was missing out on something. I still felt like a a second-class citizen. And between my two and a half jobs and my online education, I still found myself in hours that I would usually have been at school, freed up. And it was weird. (laughs) And, you know, dad and mom were often at work, and it took a while before I realized I could walk around my house and not be called up by the high school wondering where I was, or I wasn't going to be called by some of my classmates in college to deride me for staying home. And even with the added responsibilities of work and college was the responsibility of freedom. I think we define or expect freedom to be something that has no bounds or no responsibilities. But even nature proves to us that God has created everything with order, even the things we think are free. (laughs) We say things like free as a bird. Birds are not universally free. They can't fly into space. They can't live underwater. They can't run for political office. They can't purchase homes. They, or even have everything that they might even desire. You and I can find and eat food with less work than a bird. Uh, we might just say free as a bird because they can do things we can't, namely fly and cover ground a lot quicker than we can. I had discovered the responsibility of freedom when my schedule wasn't so rigorously filled up seven hours a day with school, I had to be responsible with my time and what I would use my freedom for. See, Paul has described this transition similarly as a child who moves out from under the guardian of the law and into the covenant of grace in Christ. And he says, For you, brothers, were called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is fulfilled in a single decree. Love your neighbor as yourself. So here it is in verse 14. The entire law is fulfilled. Paul is putting forward this phrase as if it should be a desire of ours. Paul, I thought you've been saying that the law doesn't save us. Some have said that Paul uses this term law in two different ways. So in, in Galatians, as well as Romans, if he's using it polemically, that is negatively, whenever he's using it in theological combat, such as you Judaizers and your law, in this way he uses the term law in reference to the idea that the Mosaic law being kept in the economy of a works-based righteousness and salvation And it is this meaning that likely has us scratching our heads right now because 
Paul has been saying, we know that man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16. So then, why should we be concerned about fulfilling the entire law? Galatians 5.14. As Paul seems to put that forward as a goal. If this isn't meant to justify us. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm saying? Okay, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> Either that or you're like, I don't think you can explain it even better. So, The second meaning that Paul uses law could be seen as in a basic sense, such as the divine standard that God requires of all people. In fact, some have seen Galatians as the abridged version of Romans. And in Romans 8.4, right smack dab in the middle of the very same subject that Paul is talking about, Paul speaks about the righteous standard of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, I had a younger... I had a, uh, I was more of the observant younger brother growing up. I was the goody two-shoes. Didn't get in trouble too much, and a big reason for that is my brother closest to me, three years older, was getting into trouble quite a lot. And I took notes. <laughs> Mental notes, of course. My dad and mom did not have some sort of understanding of a works-based acceptance. They didn't say, you do this, this, and this, and then we'll love you and put up with you. That's not how they operated. They were gospel-mirroring folks in that regard. But what did they have? Well, especially when my brother was a young adult and still lived home here and there, you're allowed to live here, of course, but you need to abide by these house rules. When you get your own house, do whatever you want. But as long as you're here, we have a few house rules. Do you hear the difference? They didn't operate on a law-based system as to where any of us kids were looking to impress them or earn our living or their love and their place at home. However, they did have some house rules, some expectations, Furthermore, Christy and I have heard a definition of rules earlier this year in a devotional book we've been going through with our boys, and uh, we've liked and repeated it often, is what are rules? Rules are meant to protect yourself or someone else. These were the house rules my parents usually had. No late night guests, come back home when you say you will, no drugs or alcohol. God has a standard, God's always had a standard, and he had one even before Moses gave the law. God put one rule in the garden. Don't eat of the tree of good and evil, or you'll know evil. He didn't need Moses, Sinai, or a tablet for that. It was a rule given to Adam and Eve. When Cain was considering murder, God shows up, again, before Moses, before the law, and says to Cain, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you refuse to do what is wrong, or excuse me, if you (laughs) refuse to do what is right, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires you, and you must master it. You hear that? If you do what is right, it's like God knows and expects Cain to know what's right, even before the law. I wonder if any of us have had the thought, well, we know we shouldn't murder because it's right there in the Ten Commandments. And whenever I'm saying, what I am saying is that Ten Commandments are not, it seems evident by the Scripture that the idea of knowing that it's wrong to murder goes back further. It's a more innate knowledge, a more primal moral understanding than that. It's a standard of God that's been implanted on the human heart because we are made in his image. Furthermore, God said to Cain here, what's crouching at his door? 
sin. Before the law. Before Moses recorded God saying it was sin, God recognized sin. And he's saying, Cain, you should recognize this is sin. Crouching at your door. I'm bringing this up because I want to show that Paul seems to have an understanding that there is the Mosaic law, which he argues throughout the letter of Galatians, that if one thinks it is necessary to keep the Mosaic law to be saved, they will find that they will find that by attempting this, they will not be justified. But then secondly, separately, it seems that Paul knows a definition of the law that is more intrinsically just God's law, God's standard, period. That Paul expects all believers to abide by and attempt to observe, to keep, to practice, to fulfill. It is a law in the sense of my parents' house rules. You know, mom and dad didn't even actually have a real list. Well, here's the paper, Kevin. Here's the house rules. No, I... I kind of know what they expect and what they didn't expect just growing up in their house. And dad and mom handed out punishments and disciplines based on their house rules, but their love or their acceptance of us was never called into question or gauged based on their house rules. Nevertheless, there they were. Do you hear the difference? I don't know, Kevin. I think you're trying to cop Paul out here. He says, fulfill the law. But let's not forget the entire thrust of his letter to the Galatians. Again, no one will be justified by works of the law. And how did Paul open up in our passage today? For you, brothers, were called to freedom. What does he mean by freedom? Freedom from the law. (laughs) We covered this last week. Many Christians, like the Galatians, can be in danger of trading slaveholders. Yay, I found Christ. He's... He set me free from my sins that enslaved me. And then slowly we become enslaved to the law. We get anxious. We, we gotta get out our pads and pens and our checklists. And for the Galatians it was, I gotta get circumcised if I wanna be saved. I gotta keep these feast days. I gotta keep the bacon out of my diet. I gotta recognize Saturday as the official day of worship. And Paul says, no, you were called to freedom. God loves you. Paul says to his spiritual son, Timothy, that God wants everyone saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a good thing that that same God became flesh and died for everyone. He's made a way for all people, Jew and Gentile, for people of all classes, of all races, of all socioeconomic backgrounds. God desires all people and made a way for all people to be saved. And for the receiving ones of His grace, He's called those people to freedom. Not to fear, not to judgment under the law, not to anxiety as if a parent who would operate out of, if you obey me, then I will love you. No, that's not how God operates. But Paul's got to make a caveat here. He's got to add responsibility to the freedom. Just like if we rescued a bird who was injured and then we fixed his wing and then we went to release him to the wild, we wouldn't find a gun to shoot him to space. (laughs) We wouldn't find a lake to drop him in. We wouldn't release him into a den of cats. (laughs) No, responsibly, we'd set him free into the bounds that he best flourishes in his freedom. So, Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, rather serve one another in love. Verse 14, the entire law is fulfilled in a single decree. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
You know, there's a few churches, maybe only one church I can think of around here, but but we all know those stories of more law-keeping, stringent churches that once a person seems to realize the cultic, law-keeping, legalistic brand of so-called Christianity that has a bunch of useless, unbiblical laws, if they're not careful, whenever they leave the church, they leave the faith with it, right? Because they've usually associated Christianity with that warped tradition. But Paul cautions against this. He's essentially saying, I know that I'm preaching that our system, our scripture, doesn't teach a law-based righteousness. We have a good father who loves, not based on our works, but don't take advantage of that. I've communicated to Calvin before, there is nothing you could ever do that would make me not love you. You're always ours. You're always welcome. I love you, case closed, nothing to worry about. But I still expect him to obey. Why? Because it comes back to that great definition of rules. Safety and protection for ourselves or others. You know, if only Paul would listen to Jesus. We could, we can't trust this Paul guy. Look at what Jesus says. An expert in the law tested Jesus with a question, Teacher, what commandment is the greatest in the law? Jesus declared, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Well, it sounds actually what Paul says too. I guess they agree. Doesn't this amaze anyone else because it's so backwards from Pharisees? from super holy law-loving people? What do self-righteous people pride themselves on? Being super lovers of God. What does God see on a level playing field? Love of Him, but then love of other people. (laughs) This makes sense because He died for all people. I think self-righteous religious people get that confused. They think that laws are love God and then pick on others who don't love Him as much as you do. Jesus takes this really extreme too. Really extreme. He says in Matthew 5, if you got a problem with a fellow believer, leave the worship service. Find them. Reconcile. Then come back. So this is beautiful because in some ways Paul is saying, God became flesh in Jesus, died for your sins to free you from the law, to make way for what? To make way so that you and I might better love each other. Isn't that what our world needs more than anything? I mean, all the problems, literally all the problems in our world, failure to understand each other, appreciate each other, comes from a failure to love each other. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the world has the definition of love down. They say you need to love your neighbor, and what they mean by that is you need to celebrate, affirm, applaud, give kudos to, never judge your neighbor for all the train wrecks they're getting in. Just hug them and say, good job. The Bible makes room in the definition of love for correction, for rebuke. You know what we call strong love. God loved perfectly and he has a high standard that the world finds repulsive. But it doesn't stop God from loving the way he loves. Paul says we're called to freedom for the sole purpose of not indulging in anything we want to, but to love each other better. Loving God and loving people is what fulfills the law. It what It's what meets all the criteria of God's so-called house rules. 
And God's house rules are a bit more sobering and serious than my parents' house rules. God's not so concerned about making sure the car has a full tank of gas, lock the doors, and come home by 10 p.m. God's house rules are, if you're a prodigal son and if you've come home, don't be like the angry, resentful brother, but instead love one another. Love people. Love them. That's what I've freed you from the effects of sin from, so that you might love one another. And apparently, this sort of law-loving teaching was causing a lack of love in Galatia. Paul says that the whole law is fulfilled in love, but then he says, but if you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out, or you will be consumed. And that word consumed is in the food-eating sense. One can say, or you will be eaten up by one another. Just like most Western cultures today, the ancient Mediterranean culture saw cannibalism as nasty, disgusting, offensive, abhorrent. And so they sometimes use the concept as a metaphor to abuse one another. Now we might say to people, man, she is just molesting that person. (laughs) They use cannibalistic metaphors. And Paul is saying that the abuse that's happening in Galatia is as abhorrent as cannibalism. They might as well be ripping limbs off each other and gorging themselves. The point is, is that this is not love. (laughs) A culture of law lover and Mosaic law enforcement is not conducive to fulfilling the law of love. You and I know this, maybe. We've been around Pharisees in the church. I'm just going to level with you because I trust you all. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but I remember one person who no longer attends here. And I was literally a bit scared most Sundays. I was checking myself, thinking about how much the music may have sounded to the person, second-guessing my sermons, wondering what kind of chewing out, there's another cannibalistic expression, I was going to get after the sermon because something maybe I preached was wrong in their eyes. Sometimes I actually did get a chewing out. I remember one morning, though, just deeply anxious the whole time we're singing hymns, and finally I heard the Lord say to me during our quiet prayer time before preaching, Okay, now that you've been so focused on how everything in this service is judged by that person, will you now preach for me? I was under the law. The law in this case was personified by a person. And to prove it, after they left, I literally received a letter with everything that was wrong with this church. It is no wonder how this sort of thinking, this sort of religion can lead to biting, devouring, and eventually eating up people. This isn't love, and it's not righteousness. The law has something to say against people who are rude to one another, who judge one another. Jesus has some very condemning things to say about such persons. He he says, They tie up heavy, burdensome loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. See, law lovers think that they're great, absent supervisors. They can tell people how to live, but do nothing insofar as discipleship, walking alongside people, receiving them mercifully, showing the grace God shows them. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you pay tithes of mint, dill, and cumin, but you have disregarded the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced latter without neglecting the former. We seem to have this primal, innate, depraved bent to receive the law selfishly. I can keep these laws, and I'm going to enforce others to be as good as I am. (laughs) Thereby, 
missing the entirely selfless, others-centered, love-others nature of God's true law, his true standard. Law-keeping then becomes this devouring and biting one another. So I just said we seem to have this depraved bent to receive the law selfishly, but also Paul seems to touch on another way that we receive the law in Romans 7. He says, I would not have been mindful of sin if not for the law. For I would not have been aware of coveting if the law had said, do not covet. But sin, seizing its opportunity through the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So I discovered that the very commandment that was meant to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing its opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So there seems to be two ways people try to keep the law unrighteously. First, like the Pharisees, priding themselves on what they keep and stuffing it down the throats of others while ignoring their own glaring inconsistencies. Or allowing the law to produce the forbidden fruit complex in people, craving what they may have not craved before simply because it's forbidden. I've said this before. I didn't want three cookies until my mom and dad told me that I could only have two. commandments, it's what they do in people. Laws were made to be broken, some have said. The holy standard God seems to lay out in the new covenant, this this second usage of the term by Paul, also presents what though? Commandments. Love God, love people. The same problem would exist, that is, if we couldn't keep it, if it weren't for what? His Holy Spirit. That's the final point of today's passage, fulfilling the law by his spirit. We pick it up in verse 16 of our text. He says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh craves what is contrary to the spirit and to the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are opposed to each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. First, I would say that this is in many ways the same as it was in the gospel accounts. Jesus is still saying, follow me. Follow him. But then I would back it up because this simple command, this simple choice has always been present in the scriptures. God, speaking through Moses, says memorably in Deuteronomy 30, for this commandment I give you today is not too difficult for you. Or beyond your reach, it is not in heaven that you should need to ask who will ascend to heaven and get it for us and proclaim it that we may obey it. And it is not beyond the sea that you should need to ask who will cross the sea to get it for us and proclaim it that we may obey it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I have set before you today life and goodness as well as death and disaster. It reminds me of Joshua who says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Yahweh. It is not a difficult question. It's not a difficult proposition. It's not something beyond your reach, says God. It's a choice, says Joshua. Whom will you serve? Here in Galatians, Paul says it's between the flesh or the spirit. Walk by the spirit. Now, Paul's going to unpack both of these, the flesh or the spirit, in the coming verses, which we will dig into next week. But 
For now, I want to make it real simple. Who do you say yes to? I don't know about you, so I'll just speak for myself. I don't think I'm fooling anyone. I usually know what's wrong and what's right. I'm not not too stupid on that score. What is stupid is when I willingly, voluntarily choose wrong. When I sin. On any occasion, I know what's a good usage of my time and what's a waste of time. I know what is a loving thing to do and what is the selfish thing to do. I know what is the godly thing to do and what is the ungodly, the worldly, the selfish thing to do on almost every occasion. And the fact that I know what's right or what's wrong and I have the choice and there is nothing hindering me from choosing what's right or what's wrong demonstrates that I can choose, right? Does that make sense? I was watching a sermon once from a well-known pastor, John Piper. And he was touching on a topic that is actually rather rampant, both in and out of the church, pornography. And John Piper was arguing this way. He says, I do not actually believe that anyone is addicted to pornography in the most literal sense. He says, because if the stakes were high enough, even the most so-called addicted person would exercise self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. And then Piper went on to demonstrate Suppose a man or a woman is behind closed doors with a phone or a laptop and the urge is strong, the temptation is rearing its head, it's coming on strong, it's becoming unbearable, and then at that moment, the door slams open and a masked man with a knife to a spouse's neck and said, don't you dare go to those websites or I will kill this person. Amazingly, I believe the once tempted man or woman will show self-control in those moments. They will resist. Or in another light, Piper surmises, suppose the same setting is true, temptation is real, a moment of no return may be coming until the door slams open and someone presents a bag and says, in this bag is a million dollars tax-free, it's all yours if you will resist in this moment. The temptation will then likely be resisted. And if you can insert whatever your vicious cycle sin might be, and you might likely find that this is true, you will not overeat in that moment. You will not snap in anger at that moment. The bottom line is that you will likely not sin in that moment. And if in that moment you can choose not to sin, why would you and I feel we can't choose it in any other moment? Because of the stakes. We don't see the stakes as high enough. We don't have our loved one in danger of dying before our eyes, but is your sin killing them in some other way? We don't have a million dollars promised if we resist in that moment, but the stakes are high. They are there. Sure, it's heaven and hell, but maybe I'm just not holy enough, but sometimes the future end doesn't strike me enough as much as what I will lose now. What life by the Spirit is and what life in the flesh is. Paul says in Christ that we have been set free. And then Paul carries on with this freedom and slavery bit in Romans 6. And he says that the freedom Christ grants us allows us to yield what we desire to yield to, to the flesh or to the spirit. And then Paul's nice enough to inform us more fully what these roads lead to. Flesh leads to death. Flesh leads to darkness. Flesh leads to the enslavement that we've been redeemed from, but the Spirit leads to life. It leads to joy. It leads to true joy, not the passing joy swallowed up by despair, guilt, and shame, and the loss that sin offers, but true joy. 
And so the stakes are this. What ocean do you want to be in? What ocean? One of darkness, despair, death, loneliness, shame, unholiness, guilt. Or one of life, love, joy, peace, warmth, wholeness, and restoration with your Creator who made you. And you know what? I don't think we always see it this way. At least I don't all the time. I'll just be honest. All I see in many of those times, in those moments, is super instantaneous fun right now. Or boring, I'm not going to, because God told me not to. But what we really miss out on is worth waiting for. It's worth resisting the temptation. We have dulled senses. David knows what he was talking about in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But sometimes we get seared consciences. We get the truth suppressed by our unrighteousness. And when joy in the presence of God and communion with God, what we were made for, with that in view, we shove it out of view and we think something something must smaller that leaves us feeling anything but fulfilled or joyful in its place. What God offers is in the Spirit, by His Spirit, by His power, that you have the power, you have the ability to choose what's right. It's like I just said, it's just me sometimes, is it just me or just sometimes the light bulb comes on in that moment of temptation where I'm told you should not do this right now, you should do that. Am I the only one willing to admit that every single time I'm making the wrong choice when I know I have the power and the ability to make the right choice? What should I be doing right now in my life that I'm not? That's my fault. Just own it. What should you be doing right now in your life that you're not? That's your fault. That is your fault. In Christ, you and I have the freedom to follow His Spirit and let His Spirit empower us to make the right decisions. But we're deciding to feed the flesh. Paul says we can walk and be led by the Spirit. We have that option. And to rob a little bit from next week, here's the beautiful thing. It's the opposite of the law to walk by the Spirit. The law was try, 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 feel guilty, get told to ship up and shape out and get smacked in the face with their unrighteousness. And the Spirit is received and lived by the same way Jesus gave it to us. Crucifixion. Surrender. Yieldedness. We don't have to fight to do what's right. We need to surrender to Christ. Be crucified with Christ. You ever think this? If only God would tell me what to do, plain and simple, then I'd do it. Paul's up there going like this. God is, I mean, not Paul. God's scratching his head. I've I've supplied my spirit. He's your counselor. That's his job. You want it real simple? It's not a magic game. It's not a formula. It's not say three special prayers, light a candle, and wait. It's say yes to everything he tells you to do. You'll start feeling it. It's that simple. Isn't that a simple takeaway? Just say yes to him. It's a simple takeaway, but you're going to find it's a little bit hard. But just because something is hard doesn't mean something is impossible or you're incapable. It means we're lazy and selfish. And we don't say yes in those moments. Just being honest. I can be honest because I'm 
been lazy and selfish all week, and this sermon has made me see that. <laughs> Don't treat your spouse that way. Yes, Holy Spirit. Okay. Get your Bible out this morning. Meet with me. The news and TV can wait. Or you could just turn it off altogether. Yes, Holy Spirit. Go to church even though you don't feel like it and have problems with some of the people there. Yes, Holy Spirit. Stop bashing on the president and pray for him. He needs it. Yes, Holy Spirit. <laughs> Love that neighbor of yours instead of canceling them out of your life. Yes, Holy Spirit. Apologize. Yes, Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is a better parent than I am, and there are probably nuances there, and he's going to talk to you a little bit more graciously, but you get the picture. And there is room in this for grace. Don't hear me wrong. Sometimes it's, you messed up. Make things right. You're forgiven. Just do the next right thing. Yes, Holy Spirit. Christ died so we can say yes. You get that? Just say yes, but you need to hear the stakes because every time the Spirit spurs you on to love, the Spirit, the Spirit is spurring you out of darkness. Out of loneliness, out of shame, out of guilt, out of selfishness, out of sin, out of pride, out of arrogance, out of the cannibalism of abuse. And he's spurring you into wholeness, holiness, warmth, peace, love, joy, and true hope. Not the hope that politicians sell you. You can fulfill the law of God by his spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father... It's hard to admit, it's hard to confess that every time I'm faced with temptation, the very simple fact you give me the choice in those moments by your spirit, provoking me, correcting me, you can either do this or not do this, and you know what's the right way to choose. Help me in those moments to believe you. Help me in those moments to remember the stakes. My loved one might not have their neck next to a knife or a million dollars might not be available, but what is available to me is true everlasting joy and peace and warmth and the fact that you died so I can have the power to say yes or no in those moments. Help me, Holy Spirit, to always say yes to you and help me whenever I fall to say yes whenever you tell me what's the next right thing to do. Help me to walk by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, give us those ears to hear your voice. Help us to always do what's right. It's what you died for. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask and we pray all this in his name. Amen.